title on the top of the page. I thought I had it on there, uh, but the one that is untitled is are the notes for the book of Genesis, all right? So if you have that one, just if you want to write Genesis on the top of it, it'll be fine. And uh, we went through a lot of this last week. My, my goal is to make these notes available to you. I know sometimes people like to write them down while they're being taught. Others like to listen. And in case you're worried about missing a note or not wanting to write notes while you're listening, uh, we're going to provide these as much as I'm able to have the time each week to type and get all this stuff put up on paper like this. Um, we will uh, provide those for you and hope that it will be a help to you. Uh, last week we dealt with, we spent a few weeks dealing with uh, the King James Version of Scripture and why that is a critical issue. Uh, if we're going to study um, uh, a survey of Scripture, we want to make sure that we're studying the right Scripture and uh, that why is it important, is it important, and why is it important. And so we spent some time dealing with that uh, the first several weeks. And uh, then last week we launched into the book of Genesis, and uh, we talked about the writer being Moses, and we gave you plenty of references for that. The book of uh, Genesis basically deals with four events and four people, and so you'll have those in your notes along with the references. We gave a little bit of background about the time of Genesis. The first 11 chapters deals with about the first 2,000 years, so that's a pretty big chunk of time to try to cover in 11 chapters. Uh, of Scripture, and then uh, the middle section, just a few chapters, deals with uh, about 200 years, and then the, the last part of the book of Genesis deals with about 90 years. <clears throat> we talked about the Christ of Genesis, how that Christ is pictured uh, several times throughout the book of Genesis. He's are referred to uh, either directly or indirectly in the book of Genesis. There's a lot of people who talk about the fact that Christ is not seen, Jesus Christ. Now, God is seen. Certainly, nobody doubts that. But a lot of people say that Christ himself is not seen in the Old Testament or not seen very much in the Old Testament. And one of the goals I have in doing this uh, is that we can see places in the Old Testament uh, throughout that show us where Christ is, is talked about, uh, either directly or indirectly. And uh, so the Christ of, uh, of Genesis or the Christ of whichever book we're in will deal with uh, the times that we believe that it's referring to the Lord Jesus Christ in its writings. And uh, then uh, if you'll flip that page over, this is where we left off last week. It's where we're going to pick up today. And dealing with the figures of Christ. How is Christ pictured? What are, are, there, are there some illustrations of characters used throughout, um, or even events used throughout the book, that picture Christ? Uh, and so I want to take a few moments to look at this. Um, the first one we find in the book of Genesis is Adam himself. If you will, turn to Romans chapter number 5 with me in your Bibles. Romans chapter number 5. And uh, I want us to look at what Paul refers to him as, as uh, we look down here in uh, Romans chapter number 5. And um, let's go ahead and read verse number 14. Paul says this, Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him that was to come. And so Paul refers to Adam as a picture or a type of Christ. Um, there were a couple of things that were parallels between Adam and Christ. One of them is they were both created sinless. Uh, and that's interesting if you think about it. Adam is the only other man that was created sinless and um, without sin. Now, he does sin later on, uh, which is contrary to what Christ is, but they were both 
uh, created by a supernatural act of God as sinless men. And then uh, a lot of times people look at Adam as the head or the one that was put in charge of the old creation and that Christ is now the head of what we call the new creation. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Uh, old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Christ is the head uh, of that. He's the head of the church. And so there's a couple of parallels that can be drawn there in, in the way that Adam can uh, help to illustrate or be a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, then we find the sacrifice that Cain and Abel made uh, also being a, a great picture of Christ. And um, Abel's sacrifice was uh, a lamb. Of course, Cain brought of the uh, fruit of the ground and uh, the blood that was shed in Abel's sacrifice oftentimes is referred to or looked to as um, uh, the uh, proper mode of sacrifice that the shedding of blood had to take place. And so a lot of times people look at that as a picture of Christ. And then, of course, Jesus being uh, the Lamb of God that John referred to as the Lamb of God that was slain from the foundation of the world. And, again, seeing him as that. Um, Genesis deals with uh, the king of Salem. His name was Melchizedek. And uh, we find that in Hebrews chapter number 7, uh, Christ is referred to as a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And a great picture of Christ uh, in the Old Testament character of Melchizedek. He's an interesting character. If you've never taken time, it's, he's one of those fellows that as you're reading through Genesis, you'll kind of brush over that portion and not give a whole lot of thought to it. But he's an interesting character to study. And uh, if you get some time to read a little bit about him, and uh, study him a little bit, you'll find some very interesting things about Melchizedek uh, that I think are very exciting as I look at him and see how, how closely he pictures uh, the Lord Jesus Christ in the New Testament and some of the, the things that Christ was going to be doing <coughs> as part of his earthly ministry and his death and burial and resurrection. Then we have Joseph. Joseph is a picture of Christ. Uh, in a lot of ways, he was loved by his father and hated by his brethren. And, of course, Christ, we know, uh, was also uh, loved by his father, hated by his brethren. Uh, he was conspired for and sold for silver. And, of course, Christ was also uh, conspired against and sold for silver. And they were both condemned, though they were innocent. Uh, Joseph was condemned uh, by Potiphar's wife. And, of course, Jesus was condemned uh, by those that had been hired to uh, give false witness against him. And um, they were both raised from a place of humiliation to great glory by God. God was the one that did those things. And uh, so, again, we see a lot of parallels, a lot of pictures in Joseph of the Lord Jesus Christ. For somebody to go through the Old Testament and say that Christ is not shown, I think you have to be almost blind to see it, uh, to not see it. Because uh, I think it's very, very clear that from the very beginning of the scriptures, just within the first chapter or so, we find Christ becoming the theme of Scripture and is shown throughout it. And so, uh, again, just so we can understand and know some of these things. There are some key verses that are given in Genesis, in chapter 3, verse number 15. We have what we refer to as the first indication of the promise of Christ coming as a Redeemer, and uh, where it deals with the fact that uh, the serpent, when God spoke the uh, curse against the serpent, he told the serpent that uh, he would bruise uh, the, uh, the Christ's heel and Christ would, cru uh, would uh, bruise his head. And so uh, we find that the first indication or mention that we refer to and say that's a prophetic 
uh, verse of Scripture regarding the coming Messiah or the coming Redeemer uh, would be in chapter 3 and verse number 15. Chapter 12 and verse number 3, we find the promise of blessings to Israel, uh, that God is going to use them to bless the whole world. And uh, what a tremendous blessing given to Israel. By the way, as we mentioned on Wednesday night, we're studying prophecy. As we studied this past Wednesday night, God is not through with Israel. Uh, He has put them um, in kind of a a holding pattern for the last 2,000 years. He's dealt mostly with the church. Um, But uh, he's not through with Israel. He still continues to watch for Israel. And at the end times, and during the time of the tribulation period, God will once again bring his people back to him. And they will be grafted back in again as the real branches. And it's exciting to see what God has in store uh, yet for Israel. And by the way, uh, it still is the promise of God that those that bless Israel will be blessed and those that curse Israel will be cursed. And it it appalls me sometimes to see how many Christian folks, people that name the name of Christ, uh, are against Israel and uh, don't have a lot of good to say about them. Uh, I love Israel not because they've always done things right by the the way that God has, has done things, but I love them for Christ's sake because they're His chosen people. And if that's, what my, if that's who my Savior loves, then I want to love them too. And I want to encourage them and, and try to be a help to them and reach them. The key chapters of, uh, of um, uh, Genesis, probably the, the, the most important one I would look at, it would be probably chapter number 15. We find three promises that are given to Israel by God. One of them is to be a great land. That one's found in chapter 15 and verse number 18. And uh, the promise to be a great nation, uh, that they would be... Uh, more than the sands of the sea, that God was going to make of them a great nation, uh, 13 in verse number 16, and then a uh, promise of being a great blessing in chapter 12 in verse number 2. And then just a final note on the book of Genesis. Genesis ends on a note of impending bondage. Uh, again, you remember that Jacob uh, had uh, followed Joseph into Egypt. They had the great famine in Canaan, and Joseph was the head of all these things in Egypt. And he, uh, he went to Pharaoh and said, can you give us some land? I'd like to bring my family here. And Pharaoh said, you take the choicest land you want. Pharaoh thought very highly of him. And they bring uh, the family there, about probably about 70 members or so. And we're going to see that as we get into Exodus. But we end the book with kind of the, the looming over their heads, this idea that there's, there's going to become some, uh, some bondage and uh, begins to give the idea of a need for his people to be redeemed. Uh, from Egypt, um, and uh, so we find that in uh, beginning in the book of Exodus. So again, just a general overview is what we're trying to give. We're not going through verse by verse in these books, but I want you to know the main themes, the main stories, some of the ways that Christ is pictured, some of the key verses, and uh, be able to use and handle God's Word well. Uh, and I think this is, it's critical that we understand this. Um, so we talked a little bit, and before we get into the Exodus, let me just review real quickly here. We talked a little bit about the division of the Old Testament. The first five books are known as the what? Anybody remember? The Pentateuch. Those are the books that were written by Moses, all right? And they primarily deal with uh, creation and God giving his law to man. Those are the two big things. So uh, if we were to categorize these, we would uh, call them uh, the law. Uh, the books of the law, and oftentimes the New Testament writers referred to these books, Genesis, Exodus, 
Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, they refer to those books specifically as the books of the law. Uh, and so that's what they're known as, and we know them as the Pentateuch. That's a big word. Uh, but basically to know that, that this is God creating the world and saying, here's how I want you to live. And uh, so God does that. The second group of uh, books that we have uh, goes from Joshua all the way through to Esther, and those are known as the what books? Anybody remember that one? Which one? The historic books, okay? It tells the history. So if you think of it this way, God creates the world. He tells man how to live. Of course, we have the fall of man in there. He tells man, gives man the law. And then we have the history. How did man do <laughs> trying to keep the law of God? And so we find very clear illustrations of how man has continuously throughout history failed to keep God's law. And then from Job through Song of Solomon, we know those five books. We have Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. Those five books are known as the, the what? Okay, the poetic books or the books of poetry would be fine. They say that because of the style that those books are written in. They're written in... Uh, Hebrew uh, uh, poetic uh, style. Um, it's interesting that those five books primarily are used to point our eyes to God himself. Uh, Job uh, is talking about how, how big God is in his, in his uh, book. And uh, even though he questions God, God uses those chapters to say, where were you, Job, when I created the world? Where were you when... Um, you know, all these, these wonderful things that I did. And it points, points people to the mighty hand of God, the strength of God. And uh, Psalms, of course, a, a book of praise. Again, lifting God up, showing His might, His protection, His care, lifting up His word, His wisdom, His statutes, His justice, His judgment. And again, just pointing us to the attributes of God. Proverbs, again, showing the wisdom of God, the absolute wisdom of God. Ecclesiastes is, uh, from, is a book about uh, preaching and uh, the fact that Jesus uh, is one of the, uh, that uh, Christ is one of the great preachers of Scripture. And um, uh, again, you see the, the, the biblical doctrine and truth that God has established. And then, of course, in the Song of Solomon, you see a wonderful, beautiful picture of God's unlimited and gracious love. And uh, so those five books, even though they're poetic books, they really kind of take our eyes and put them on the Lord Jesus Christ and on God himself and help us to understand a little bit more about him uh, specifically. And then uh, we have uh, from uh, Isaiah through, uh, was it uh, Daniel, uh, I think, Isaiah, Jeremiah, is that right? Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel. Yeah, so five books. Um, Ezekiel, Ezekiel, Daniel, Isaiah, uh, yeah, let's see. Song of Solomon, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel. So Isaiah to Daniel, uh, we know those as the what books? The which ones? The major prophets, okay? So now we see uh, God letting us know what's to come. So if you think of it in terms of, again, the first five books, God is um, creating the world, telling man how to live, making a record of how well man succeeded at that, when we realize that we failed, showing how great God is, and then saying, now here's what's going to happen from this point forward. So it, it just flows. The Old Testament flows. Uh, it's not disjointed. It's not individual books that don't associate with each other. You need to look at it as a whole. Uh, it's amazing how perfectly this book is put together. 
so we have the major prophets, and they're known as the major prophets for what reason? Anybody remember? Pardon me? Because of the length of them. They're very big. They're big books. And they wrote a lot to them. And then we have the last books, um, uh, which would be from Hosea. Is that right? Daniel, Hosea, uh, Hosea to Malachi. And those are known as the minor prophets. And again, because not because they're minor in what they say. In fact, some of the minor prophets uh, have some very, very strong and powerful prophecies regarding the end events. And we'll be looking at that, some of those, on Wednesday nights as well as we study um, but it's amazing some of the great, great end-time prophecies that these minor prophets have. Uh, so again, not because they're minor, but because they wrote a smaller book. It's just a small book. So that's how our Old Testament is put together. Old Testament, the idea of the Old Testament means is re- in reference to the Old Covenant or the Old uh, uh, Agreement that God had made uh, with man. And then we find that when Christ comes on the scene in the book of Hebrews, it talks about the fact that there needed to be a new covenant or a new testament uh, and that was done at calvary and so that's why our bible is divided into two halves um, the old covenant and now the new covenant and so we we understand that all right y'all ready to jump into exodus we'll see how far we get so go ahead and you can get your notes out there if you'd like to once again the writer is moses i don't think there's a whole lot of um, reputable bible scholars and men that uh, would be our, our type of folks that would believe in the uh, inspiration, preservation of the King James Bible that would look at this and say, we don't think Moses wrote this. <clears throat> there are numerous references in the Old Testament. I gave you several of them here. Uh, Exodus chapter 20, verse 25, that refers to this. Joshua chapter 8, verses 30 to 32, refers to the fact that Moses is the writer. And Malachi chapter 4, and verse number 4. Uh, then we find a lot of the New Testament writers, especially the ones that wrote the Gospels, and the Apostle Paul also make reference to Moses writing these books. And so you see a list of those in John and Romans and Mark and Luke and in John. And I've given you all those references. And if you'd like to take some time, uh, you can look those up individually. Uh, so there's, there's internal, there's external evidences that Moses wrote these things too. But I just like to look at what does the Scripture say about it. Uh, if the Bible tells me Moses wrote them, then I, I don't have to have any other proof. I'm fine with that, okay? So Moses wrote these books as far as we know. Just a few uh, general notes about the book of Exodus. It's the record of Israel's birth as a nation. So again, moving from uh, a, uh, if you remember Jacob, uh, when he wrestled with God, uh, had his name changed to Israel. And uh, But he was still a family, pretty much. When they went into Egypt, they had about uh, 70 members. If you look at the second note there, the family of Jacob composed of about 70 members. Uh, they were a family, and during their time in Egypt, they transitioned into a nation. And God uh, greatly blessed them and prospered them. And in those um, 400 or so years that they were in Egypt, they rapidly multiplied uh, to well over a million. There's some people that believe they were between two and three million, um, but w- we know at least well over a million uh, Israelites by the time they left Egypt in just 400 years. That's uh, a pretty pretty good blessings of the Lord, I would say. And uh, God certainly blessed them. They benefit from God's divine protection in the book of uh, Egypt, uh, book of Exodus. They are also fed and nurtured by God in the book of Exodus. And by the way. God is the same today, and He certainly does that for His children, regardless of whether it be the nation of Israel 
or those of us that have put our faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. We have God's protection. We have His nurturing and His feeding of us. You say, well, how does He feed us and nurture us today? Uh, by His Word. His Word nurtures us and feeds us. And spiritually is a big uh, blessing to us. Um, I have a couple typos here. We know it is a continuation of Genesis. This book is the continuation of so it should follow Genesis. Because it begins with the word now, uh, which is kind of an interesting thing. It talks all about Genesis, and having established all that, it says now. <laughs> now here's what's going to happen. Here's the things that are going to happen. And so uh, we find it's a continuation of the book of Genesis. The key event uh, is the exiting from Egypt. This is the, everything kind of points to this uh, in the first part of Exodus, and then everything beyond it kind of is based on the fact that they did leave. And had the Exodus not taken place, uh, the things happening in the first part of the book and in the last part of the book would not have happened. And so the key event uh, is the exiting of Egypt, and that's found in chapter number 19 and following. More than likely, this book was written uh, during the time of the wilderness wanderings and was probably a type of a journal uh, that Moses kept and uh, of the records of God's working with the nation of Israel. <clears throat> so during the time of Genesis, we find that it was uh, most likely written during that time period. Uh, somewhere during the time of around 1440 B.C., uh, 40, uh, 45, I'm sorry, and 1405 B.C. And we talked a little bit about generally some of the dates on Wednesday night as we've looked into prophecy. Here's an interesting thought. This is a prophetical thought, so we're going to transition to Wednesday for a minute, so put your thinking caps on here for a moment. We had roughly 4,000 years from the time of creation until the time of Christ. We've had roughly 2,000 years uh, since the time of Christ. Now, I'm not one to put dates or times, or say this is when Christ is coming back. But it's interesting that prophetically how much God puts an emphasis on uh, the six days and then the resting of the seventh. And we have um, uh, the, the days of creation. We have six days the Lord labored and the seventh God rested. We have um, the years, the prophetic years, uh, where uh, the year of... Um, uh, every seventh year was supposed to be a Sabbath year uh, in the nation of Israel. And then after seven of those, there was to be a year of jubilee, another year of rest uh, after that. And then we have, um, let's think of this in terms of prophetic years. And you know, uh, the Bible mentions, and I understand the context of this is to show that with God there's, there's no reference to time. And he talks about the fact that a day with the Lord is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as a day. That's not a a one-to-one ratio. God's not giving a ratio of time. He's, he's trying to express how eternity works. There's, there's no measure of time. It, it, it can work either way. But it is interesting that because there's no real measure of time there, uh, but we have 6,000 years of, of time, we've got 1,000 years of the millennial reign of Christ where we will no longer have to deal with Satan. He'll be bound in the bottomless pit. We will be at, at rest from the sin of this world and the, the tempting of, the, of Satan and the great tempter. And uh, I don't know how soon God's going to come. I, I, I think it's going to be in my lifetime. But I was talking to some folks the other day. People have been thinking that since the time of Christ, too. And uh, so I don't know when he's going to come. It's an interesting thought, though, that here we are at roughly 6,000 years and 1,000 years that we know yet to come 
under the reign of Christ and could be very clearly, could be quite possibly uh, that he's had 6,000 years of the earth and the 7,000th year, uh, the 7, 7,000 years uh, may be the time of rest. I don't know. Uh, something to think about, something to keep in mind. Anyway, uh, back to the time of Genesis real quick. Um, you know, I'm going to, it's uh, 13, 14 minutes, 13 minutes till. I'm going to end there because I want to, we're going to take a little bit of time on this particular section next week. Um, there's, a, there's some really, really good things uh, in the, the Christ of Genesis and then also in the pictures uh, of uh, how he's shown in, in the book of Exodus. And so I want to take some time. I don't want to rush through that, and we're here at the end of the hour. So if you will, let us uh, go ahead and end there for today. And next week we're going to delve into um, that section. We'll probably take the whole week next week to finish these notes uh, because there's some really rich things uh, in some of this. And you can read it and study it a little bit this, this week for yourself, and it may be a help to you. All right. Uh, let's go ahead and be dismissed in prayer, and then we'll be back for our next service here in about 12 minutes or so. Father, we're so thankful for your word. We pray that you'll bless it. And, Lord, as we've taken time to look at just, uh, just having a, a working knowledge of your word. Lord, I know we read it. We study it oftentimes verse by verse. But sometimes we don't see how it's all interconnected. We don't see the high-level view of your hand at work throughout Scripture. And so help us as we uh, go through these books. Our intent is not to rush through but to just give a, a nice framework, something that is easily understood, uh, to be able to see uh, throughout the Old Testament uh, a little bit of the context of uh, how you've dealt with the nation of Israel specifically, uh, but also with mankind, and that we can learn from this. We can learn about you. We can learn about who you are and your attributes, that we can see you in these things. And that may be an encouragement to us and a help to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we'll be back in about 12 minutes or so.